Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This episode was sponsored by DesignSpark, design tools and resources for engineers to help make their ideas happen. I'm Shreya. And I'm Thomas, and we are your hosts for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not the typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on QTalks, we're talking to Tom Britton. Tom is co-founder of Syndicate Room, a fintech company allowing investors to co-invest with super angels in a portfolio of early stage ventures. Tom is an ex-footballer who then did an MBA at Cambridge before beginning Syndicate Room with his co-founder. Hi Tom, thanks for coming on the show with us today. Hello. If you could start with giving us an introduction of your background, please. Sure, of course. So my name is Tom Britton. I'm currently the co-founder at Syndicate Room, but prior to that I dabbled in many things. So as you can tell, I've got a funny accent. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles. My mom's kind of second, third gen Los Angelian. My dad's from Edinburgh, so he moved over when he was kind of 24, 25, and I sort of did the opposite. So I grew up playing soccer, as you will, or football. Um, and when I was done with university, I wanted to kind of explore the world, but also see if I was actually any good at it. So I moved to Edinburgh. I played in the lower leagues uh, in Scotland for a few years. Realized that, in fact, I was okay, <laughs> not, not great, um, but also knew that I had an education that I could fall back on, and I didn't want to end up being a 30-year-old who hadn't made any money in the sport trying to find a, a career then. So when I was about 25, I started really focusing more on my career and not playing, which sounds rather young, but it's kind of depressing, <laughs> but, uh, but it's the, what I needed to do. And I got very fortunate. I, I joined a company called The Trainline, so trainline.com when they were still relatively small and got to be a part of their scale experience. So um, I fell into being the ops product manager um, in Edinburgh and after two kind of successful years developing the, the products for the operations teams to use to manage clients, uh, customers, um, an opening in their main product team and the commercial team opened up in London. Um, and I moved down to London just when they were starting to look at doing mobile apps. So I got to fall in, this was kind of 2009, um, uh, like I said, really lucky. Um, I joined the team, built out the iPhone app, and then the Windows app, and then the Android app, which um, got won some awards. You know, had kind of probably five to ten million downloads while I was there. And everyone's like, "Oh, you did that app," and I'm like, "Well, my team did that app," and it was just really good timing and being <laughs> part of a, a team that had a great marketing uh, you know, team behind it that could push the app. But yes, yes, I did do that, and and after doing that, I kind of got the the bug, if you will. So I was very much entrepreneurial for the train line. And I wanted to kind of expand and do my own thing. And so I left the train line in 2012, um, having been accepted into the Judge Business School in Cambridge. Um, and similar, twist of luck, um, I was doing my MBA, or studying for the MBA, as you say here, uh, when I met the co-founder of Syndicate Room, Gonzalo, who had done the MBA prior to me, but had stuck around to work on the idea that eventually became Syndicate Room. Which Sorry, a long answer. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Uh, which brings us to Syndicate Room. So what was the initial idea for that business? Yeah, so Syndicate Room um, as an idea was to allow um, a wider group of individuals to invest in startups with people that knew what they were doing. 
Um, so it was to give people access to investing in this thing called startup or the startup asset class, um, but alongside people who had been there and done it before. And so the first iteration was very much a platform that let people co-invest into individual deals that were being led by business angels. So obviously in the Cambridge ecosystem, you've got Cambridge Angels and Cambridge Capital Group. And in London, you have a larger number of, of angel networks and throughout the country you have them. Our aim was to say, look, like these groups of angels seemingly know what they're doing. They're conducting due diligence on the deals. They're negotiating the terms, the valuations, all of that. They're doing the hard work. We'll come in off the back of that and let our network of people co-invest with them for much smaller amounts. So the minimum being a thousand pounds. Um, that, that was the initial idea, uh, and we kind of grew that business um, up until really last year, um, and we had invested in something like 250 companies. Mm-hmm. We were part of funding rounds in excess of 200 million, so total raised, um, where we played a small part in that. Um, but really, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, we, and I think this is probably a question you'll get onto, we, we started to see a change in the market and in the product and some failings in the product, um, which led us to rethink the business. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess what you could say is when you're, when you're looking at a two-sided market, you have to satisfy both clients. So anyone doing any type of two-sided markets where you have buyers and sellers, you have to balance the two of them and make sure that they're both, it's efficient, but they're both benefiting. And what we were starting to see at Syndicate Room was that companies weren't benefiting as much as the investors. For a company to come and raise with us, it would take four to five months for them to do a funding round, which is the long time. And when they would come to them, us, Unlike a fund, we could never guarantee how much capital they were going to raise. So a company comes to us and says, okay, well, I'll consider working with you. And how long is it going to take? Five months. Okay, well, how much am I going to raise? I don't know. <laughs> you know mm. Like, well, mm, there's better, more efficient ways to get capital. And so they would tell us politely no, not all of them, but a number of them that we really wanted to invest in told us no, even though they had these really strong lead investors who we had worked in in the past. And then missing out on those companies, we kind of woke up to the fact that we were potentially missing out on the ones that were going to do really well. And that then our investors were not going to get access to those potentially great companies. And so we spent a lot of time working on how we could change that. Um, and essentially what we came up with was a fund that was disconnected from the platform, a fund that fit in like it was an angel. So it can move quickly, deploying a fixed amount of capital um, and not hold the companies up from continuing their journey and getting back to work on whatever it is they were building quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what we've what we've morphed into. Um, and the fund has a lot of data behind it. So we spent almost a year analyzing the whole of the startup market in the UK. Um, so all of the companies raising private rounds going back to kind of 2011. We then indexed the market. So we looked at growth of the market. We then looked at the underlying investors in each of the company, how much they were investing, how many opportunities they were investing in, what the growth of their portfolios were looking like, what size of check they were writing, the valuations, you know, not everything, but we indexed a lot of it. And what we said was there's constant growth in this market. um, And these are the people that are consistently beating the market. So we should be co-investing with these people. And effectively, our new fund is that. It's a co-investment fund that invests with these people that we know are consistently beating the market. So undergoing this change in the structure of syndicate room, how you said you've got two sort of sides of people that you have to satisfy. So how did you manage their expectations going through that change? And what was their kind of feedback as you were going through this process? Yeah, um, as you can imagine, like building up a platform that let people pick and choose their investments and doing that for six years, there were quite a few people who were saying, I don't want to invest in a fund. Mm. Like, 
I want to pick my own companies. And no matter how much data we put in front of them about the fact that most people that pick and choose don't get it right, you know, they, there's something more than the investment that they were getting out of Mm -hmm. it. So they were getting that connection to the company. They were getting to do the due diligence and like, you know, make that decision for themselves. So it wasn't necessarily a financial decision for them, but they were saying no. And so if you look at like the investment that we did last year through the platform versus the fund, it's kind of like two thirds of the business was direct investments. A a third was our old fund. So Mm -hmm. we had a sidecar fund that worked a different way. And now we're saying, look, we're just a fund. They're like, well, what about us? You're not satisfying us anymore. And to be honest, we've gone from what was a platform and two-sided to effectively we're a product. Mm -hmm. And so as you can imagine, there's a lot of change, not only to the clientele, like some of them have remained, but also the team and the structure of the team and how we focus as a team who's working on what, because we're not having to balance that platform. We are delivering a product. And so it's a very, very different business to what it was a year ago. Mm. Slightly different customers. I mean, many of them still want that access to startup market uh, and we're the asset class of the startup market. But yeah, we, I don't want to say we said goodbye to a lot of people um, in terms of customers. Like They could still come back. <laughs> but most of them have said, I'm going to pick and choose and I'm going to find another place to do it. So it's a bit hard you know, as a business to be like, well, I'm switching off effectively half of our revenue stream. Yeah. But in cutting that and restructuring the business, ultimately the goal is to be able to scale further than where we were. And to be honest, you know, any, any startup, as you're growing a business and you're trying to scale it, you know, a lot of people think that, that growth is scale, but growth, if you're just paying for it, is not scale. Scale is not having to pay for that growth, like continuing to grow it beyond what you're paying for. So we could have pumped money in and continued to grow the platform side of the business, but the margin was never going to grow. However, with a fund, a fund is much more scalable. You don't need as many people to grow a fund. You need more investors. But because you're not doing individual company funding rounds, you're doing a fund, you don't need as many people to manage that, and therefore your margins increase. And the fund can grow, but we won't have to grow the size of the team. So in the short term, a lot of pain. (laughs) But in the long term, we'll overtake that. We'll be a larger business with more revenue and not need as many people to get there as, as we would have to con- having continued the platform. So as a fund, are you sector and geographic specific or agnostic? Um, good question. You know, most funds do have kind of a sector or two that they go after, and mm. some of them are focused on a specific region. So for us, what we've said is, this is the startup market. We've indexed it, and we want to reflect the market in many ways. So we don't specify sectors. Um, with the exception of we won't do anything that's in military or gambling. Mm -hmm. But most of the angels that we co-invest with don't do that. In terms of regions, well, UK, because it is an EIS, so the tax wrapper fund. But in terms of regions within the UK, we look everywhere. So if the angels spot a deal in some town that I've never heard of (laughs) because I've not visited them all, then great. They found a great team there that know the market that are building a product. Fantastic. We want that. And what I will say, though, is that from the market data that we have and what we've seen from the angels, about 60% of the uh, companies uh, that they invest in are within Greater London. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, that is what the market represents and also where the funding tends to go. So about 60% of the funding goes there. Um, So um, outside of London, then you look at Cambridge and Oxford being kind of two hubs. Then you look at kind of Newcastle, Edinburgh and Glasgow have a few, um, and kind of Brighton and Bristol picking up a little bit on the tech scene, Mm -hmm. a little bit in Leeds as well, but mostly it's kind of the Golden Triangle and then a few hubs outside of them that that, uh, they invest in the most. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because when you're an entrepreneur, you want to congregate around other people who know what they're doing or around the angels themselves because you want the mentorship. 
you know, the, the thing with Silicon Valley is you, you go to a coffee shop and you meet a founder of another billion dollar company and you talk about what works and what doesn't work. And so I'm not saying that it's the same in London, but there is that ecosystem where you can attend events, you can meet investors, you can meet other entrepreneurs, you can co-work with them if you want and share experience and learn from each other. And, and that really does foster the, the ecosystem. Mm. Um, so it's not a bad thing. It's actually quite positive when you start to see that happening. I would really like to unpack the evolution from the initial platform idea to to the fund a little bit more. Mm. Um, so, because one one of the interesting things about Syndicate Room at the very beginning was that you made an industry accessible to individuals, mm. which it, before Syndicate Room existed didn't have any easy way of investing into this kind of asset class. And, and is that still the, the spirit of, of Syndicate Room or have you morphed into a more traditional VC fund? So, so yeah, that, that is a great question. And we definitely do want to make startup investing in a way still accessible to people, which is why with our new fund, the minimum investment is 5,000 pounds mm -hmm. as opposed to an industry average that's 20,000. Um, the way that the fund works, the underlying mechanics um, with it being an EIS fund mean that means that each person has to have whole shares in the companies they invest in. So if you imagine um, getting 50 companies per portfolio, per portfolio that you create, you know, um, 5,000 divided by 50 is roughly 100 per company. Some companies have share prices that are like 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 plus pounds. Mm -hmm. you wouldn't, if you went lower than that 5,000, say it was 1,000 and you divided it by 50, so roughly 20 pounds per company, you wouldn't be able to buy shares in all of the companies of the portfolio that we're trying to create for you. So we couldn't go below that 5,000 because of the mechanics of the fund. Mm -hmm. But actually, when you look at the audience that we served, quite a few people were doing a couple investments per year. So two, three, four investments per year at that thousand-ish pounds. So actually getting them to step up to 5,000 and then giving them this whole portfolio of startups made sense. Like it wasn't a big ask for most of the people that we were working with. So yes, like we are trying to keep that and making venture capital and the sort of asset class in that much more accessible to a wider audience of people. A related question, of course, is why, why chase individuals? If you, if you have a fund, you could also go to institutional investors and, and just raise money from them. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've talked about that. I mean, definitely with the audience that we've built and we've wanted to serve at first, it has been individuals. Mm -hmm. And so the structure of this is much more accessible to that individual. However, we have had some family offices who have come in and put in larger checks. And, you know, if someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm going to put in a quarter of a million or half a million, you don't turn that down. But at the same point in time, the structure is very much geared towards that individual. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing about institutions and fund the funds and family offices and wealth managers and all of them is that they generally want to see a track record within the fund, many years, lots of exits, et cetera. And we've only been operating a fund for a few years. And, and now it's like we've been operating a fund for a few years, but this is a very different model from how we used to fund to run it. So even though we have a little bit of track record in the old way, they look at it and they go, well, you don't necessarily have the track record that we look for. And of course, if you're one of these people in the institution, you have to be able to justify why you've done that. Um, and so for them, like even though we present to them the historical data on all of the underlying angels, they want to know that we as a company have had success, not just the people we're co-investing with. So we are starting to... To, to plant the seeds, if you will, with the institutional investors and the family offices and the wealth managers. And I would like to say that, or think that in a year or two, they'll start to say, okay, well, we'll give you a little bit of our business. And as we grow it, as the fund proves successful, which of course it will, <laughs> I 
can't actually say that, but <laughs> you know, I would like to think that should we get that success, um, then they'll start to give us a bit more of the business. But if you look at it compared to a VC fund, it's like VC fund, 10 investments, fund manager, lots of experience. And then you look at syndicate room and you're like, okay, who's your fund manager? We don't really have a fund manager. It's the data. Okay. How many investments are you doing? 50. 50? <laughs> like, yes, 50. Not five, not 10, 50 investments. And they go, uh, this is, uh, yeah, this isn't like anything else. And you're like, you're, you're right. It's not like anything else. And the data says that this is better. So, you know, maybe think of that, but um, I wish it were that easy. It's not. We have to build the relationships. We have to get the track record ourselves. And then hopefully those doors will open. It's really interesting. Um, sticking on the topic of the evolution of Syndicate Room, you mentioned a little bit earlier about how you had to make some major changes to your team. So I was wondering if we could talk about yeah. that in terms of the decisions that you had to make, why you made them, and what lessons potential founders could learn from that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's um, it wasn't easy to go through the process. Mm. Um, effectively, what had happened was we had built this team up that was trying to serve a market, but it wasn't doing it efficiently. We had the platform, we had this co-investment fund. At some point in time, we were trying to do IPOs and get involved in public market work. So we were kind of spread a little bit too thin. I don't want to say unfocused, but too many focuses. And we weren't necessarily doing any of them super well. Um, my co-founder, Gonzalo, and I and the board, we had long discussions back in February, March um, of last year. And it was all about like, what is the vision? How are we going to get this to scale again? And all these different ideas were put forward. Um, and ultimately what it came down to was instead of trying to do many things, it was really focused on one thing that we thought we could do really well that could scale. And so when you looked at the business and you pick it apart and given the data that I told you earlier about missing out on certain companies that didn't want to go with the platform, it just made sense to focus on a fund. Mm. Um, my co-founder, it was really his idea um, from the syndicate room going back to when he did his MBA before me. Um, he had been working on it for you know, like seven years. Uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a long graft. Mm. And what he kind of realized was that you know, it was time to kind of change things up and change up the leadership as well. Mm. So then we looked at the team and um, about, well, at this point in time, it was two years prior, we had hired um, a guy to come in named Graham. Uh, NBR COO. I had done the MBA with Graham. I knew his background. I knew how he worked. His management consulting, amazing with data, <laughs> efficiency, et cetera, like everything you want to scale. He had joined the business as COO and we talked about how we could restructure the leadership team. It kind of made sense for him to move into the CEO role. Mm -hmm. um, me, what I was working on before CTO and then started working on the business development side, um, I would stay focused on that. And Graham and I definitely balanced each other really well in addition to the rest of the senior team. So we all have different strengths and weaknesses. And so he, he took over as CEO. Um, Gonzalo stepped away from the business. He's still a, a non-executive. Mm -hmm. And then when we looked at the rest of the team, we were looking at what skill sets we had that would be applicable to the fund. And so it was really shaping the team to be a team that could manage, deliver, and grow a fund. And unfortunately, what that meant was letting go of almost half of Syndicate Room. So... At our biggest, we were around 30 people. Right now, we're 17. Wow. Um, and it's kind of hard. It was really hard to you know, say goodbye to people who are good people. And you weren't letting them go because you had done anything wrong. It was just, look, this is the direction of the business. And unfortunately, we can't afford to have people who aren't necessarily the right people for where the business was going. Yeah. Um, luckily, like they're all smart, <laughs> youngish individuals um, who found jobs pretty easily. Um, 
so I didn't I didn't feel as bad. But yeah, when you're having those conversations, and to be fair, Graham, you know, stepping in as CEO, he had a lot of them. Um, it's just hard, and you have to tell people like, look, the business is changing, and there's no longer a role for you here. You know, and some people had been with us two, three years. Some had only been with us about six months, but you went through it. And I guess the biggest lesson from that is. One, uh, self-reflection, like always knowing if you're the right person anymore for the job. Mm. Two is um, <laughs> finding a way of being able to detach and think about the business. Because if we had sat there and just thought about the people, we probably wouldn't have made all the changes. We would have tried to shape the business to the people. Mm. But instead we said, this is what the business needs to be. This is what's going to scale and ultimately deliver returns to our shareholders. And it's unfortunate, but we're going to have to make changes to senior, to, to junior members of the team. Um, so yeah, just mm. be reflective, <laughs> detach a little bit, think about the business. So to follow up on that, yeah. have you? we've spoken to people in the past who have said that they like to surround themselves by people that will um, argue against you or provide a kind of different point of view in a constructive way. Yeah. Do you agree with that? And have you found that to be helpful within your sort of C-suite team? Um, or wider to the network that you have? No, I, th I think it's good so long as you have a defined way of decision making. Mm. So, you know, you can bring in people that are going to disagree with you, but at the end of the day, what kills a business is if they put off making decisions because someone's brought it up, right? And sometimes as a, as a senior figure in the team, you listen to everyone, you digest it, and then you make the decision, you explain why you've made that decision, and you get everyone behind that decision. And I'm not saying you always go with your, you know, what you want. You have to be able to listen. But sometimes what happens is decisions just keep going on. It's like, oh, they disagree. So because one person disagrees, then we're not going to do this or we're going to delay doing that. And if you do that, then you, you never really go anywhere. Or you kind of go back and forward. So at some point in time, you just have to cut off the disagreement. Uh, and if you have the right team, then they understand as long as you've listened and replayed how what they've said has added value. And this is why we're doing it this way. And and go from there. Mm. So so I agree, but I also disagree. <laughs> There's a certain point in time where you need to just say, we have to make a decision, and the decision gets made. An on-the-fence answer, nice. <laughs> no, no, it, well, it is an, it's, it's not on the fence. It's you, you restrict the amount of time that yeah. you have for that disagreement, and then ultimately you do have to make a decision. So Now, early stage investing is of great interest to our listeners, um, and, and maybe to dig a little bit deeper into that topic, it would be great to talk with you about how do you source uh, attractive deals <laughs> as, as one big topic. And then maybe the other topic is how do you then construct uh, a well-performing portfolio out of these deals? And so maybe to start with the, the sourcing of deals, mm -hmm. um, how do you get the deals and, and how do you know if it's a good deal? <laughs> yeah, so in a traditional fund, I would say, well, in any fund, it's about relationships and network. So for us, we've identified the angels that we want to co-invest with, and we've built up relationships with them. So coffees, phone calls, emails, et cetera, we get to know them, know what they invest in. I mean, the data tells us typically what they invest in, so we start from there. And then it's being at the front of their mind. So if we had just explained what we did and then disappeared, then a deal comes up and they invest in it and they share it with the people that they've been speaking with regularly. So for us, we have to be one of those people that they speak with regularly. So it's almost an email every month just telling them, hey, this is what the fund's doing, this is how much we're investing now, this is the capacity, these are the things we've invested in the past, and this is what we're planning to do going forward. 
And then it's kind of quarterly, and we've just started. We'll we'll have our first dinner with a group of these angels, bringing them together in March, um, so that they don't just put us to one side. It's like we're always there in the front of their mind. Um, how do you construct a good portfolio? Well, for us, it's about diversification. So we are not experts in anything, rather than knowing the data about <laughs> the industry. So we want a very broad portfolio that's fairly early um, in the stages. Um, and it's the co-investing with people that are smarter than us. And I do think that, that that is a winning formula. So if we were trying to be a traditional fund, we would hire people that were experts in a sector to dissect all of the deal flow and hopefully pick a few. And from that few that you picked, one, fingers crossed, would do really well. But what we actually see is that in the market, so for VC returns, if you take global VC, it's 18%. But half of it is getting less than 10% return. Half of the whole market is getting less than 10% return to investors. Another quarter is kind of getting 10 to 20%. So there's really only a quarter of that that's dragging the market up and getting you know, exceptional returns. And it's like, actually, for us, that's because they're trying to pick and choose. They're trying to beat the market by picking a few good deals. And what we're saying is don't try and beat the market. Play the market in many ways. Play the market of the people beating it. So 50 deals per year of the people that have consistently beat the market, as opposed to six to 10 deals that we think will beat the market. So you're using data that analyzes the super angels rather than analyzing the startups themselves. So to kind of flip that on its head, do you think it is possible to um, potentially sort of sometime in the future to use data that can predict startup successes without having to sort of rely in a for want of a better word on super angels judgments i'd like to say yes but i think the truth is no um and the reason i think it's no is that the trends are hard to forecast so you don't know where the hot sector is going to be that's going to lead to the, the super returns um it's because these angels themselves build portfolios and are super connected that by chance or by just hard work, they get into that deal. They don't know if it's going to be super good. What they know is that it's got a good team and a big product. And in most cases, they don't even know how the how big the market is for that because it's a company that's trying to build the market. Mm. So they're taking a, a risk on that. And for us to try and predict what the angels are trying to predict <laughs> you know, would, would be rather difficult. So really by just aligning ourselves with these people that are continually kind of staying ahead of the market, that's, that's how I see that we'll continue to get good returns. Mm. One of the questions I have is that, as you already mentioned, the the returns for venture capital investments are highly skewed. Mm -hmm. So a few do exceptionally well, but the vast majority not though great. What is the incentive of really successful um, investors to get you guys on board? Yeah, so the angels that we're aligning with go in early. And the companies at that stage generally don't have a lot of traction. So it's not like they're attracting millions of pounds. These are companies that are raising, say, half a million to two million. And often what happens with these companies is with the check size that we write, they would raise more than, than, you know, than they would have closed on if it would come efficiently. But what happened previously was we'd be like, hey, it's going to take four to five months. Now they're closing out a round. Say they've got 400, 500, 600 in the round. And we go, hey, if you give us 10 days, we can add an extra 100. They go, oh, yeah, just 10 days. That's great. Like, we'll take an extra 100. That 100 doesn't really affect, like, the skew of equity in the round, but it does give them a bit more runway so that in the next round, 
they can hopefully get, have gotten a little bit further and raise it to slightly higher valuation. So it's being efficient, it's being able to come in quickly, not having to change the terms, but because we know the angels, we can go, look, this angel's involved, got a great track record, let's go. Um, and I can't recall a deal yet in the new model. No, sorry, there's one deal that um, did turn us down, but the reason they turned us down was when we first started, we wanted the companies to sign a bunch of different subscription agreements. And they're like, no, we've got our own. Like, we don't want to pay our lawyers to review that. Mm -hmm. So a change that we made and being agile with the way our fund deploys was we spent a lot of time figuring out how we didn't have to provide our own subscription agreements and legals. So now we take their legals, we review them, and we cover that cost so it's not a barrier to them. Um, and we haven't had someone say no yet doing that. Mm -hmm. You already mentioned a few times that track record and, and data insights are incredibly valuable to you. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us a little bit as to what can you learn from historical data that helps you to predict future success? Yeah, so so the main one is consistent portfolio growth of these angels. And these are people that are doing multiple investments. So it's not just, oh, they've got a small portfolio and they got lucky ones. It's people who you know, generally are making one to three. Sometimes people are making 10 investments per year. Um, so they have enough data points where you can look at it and say, okay, well, as a portfolio, they've got strong growth. Um, they're making sizable investments, so it's not throwaway capital. It's people who are actually thinking about it and treating it like an investment. Um, and what else we look at? So we look at the industries that they invest in. So, you know, for example, if someone was a life science investor and all of a sudden they invested in, say, a film, we'd probably say red flag, <laughs> you know, it's not a typical investment. We know the range of valuations that they typically get involved with, so it's startups, so generally it's quite broad. So what we look for is track record, but consistent behavior that we can create a pattern to, and we can tell if they're fitting within that, that pattern or that behavior. Uh, and that's enough for us to want to reach out to them. And, and again, these are people who are beating the market. The market was growing at 28%, so it's people that are getting more than 28% year-on-year growth in portfolio value. So they're doing something right. If there's somebody who wants to start investing or is currently investing but wants to do it smarter <laughs> in early stage ventures, what uh, if if they don't necessarily have access to all this data or they don't have the time to process all the data um, as sort of your your new fund is doing, <laughs> um, what are the things that they should be that they could look at um, to be investing smarter? Yeah. So first thing is. Um, <laughs> like investing in venture capital as a whole should generally just be a small part of a market because it is super, super risky. I'll say that one more time. Investing in startups is super, super risky. Um, you know, people find it hard to beat the public market where there's lots and lots of information. In the startup market, there's not a lot of information. Companies do uh, are required to do an annual report into companies' house, and it doesn't even have to have a ton of information. So there's a lot of asymmetry going on in, in typical mm -hmm. startup investing. So don't expect that you can go in and you can read about a market and read a company's reports and be like, oh, you know, price to earnings ratios here and da 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 It's not like that at all. Um, with these angels, what they typically look for is strong team. So everyone says that, but what is a strong team? Well, have they done it before? Have they done it before successfully? Are they experts in their industry? Like actually experts, not just people that have some experience. How well do they deliver, right? So angels will monitor companies sometimes for months. They'll get to know them. They'll then a quarter later say, how are you getting on with this or that? And see if they are able to deliver what they say they're going to deliver. 
because most startups exaggerate when they present. You know, and, and we're going to be uh, cash flow positive in 18 months. This is the last funding round that we'll ever need. Not true. <laughs> you know, like it'll be seven years before you cash flow positive, and you'll have had five or six funding rounds in there if you're kind of on the average. Um, so if you're looking at this, you have to be able to, you know, to, to see the smoke in the mirrors and be like, okay, well, this is clearly not true. They're saying that the market is this many billion, but actually the addressable market for their particular product is this much. Um, and they have this skill set and they actually have this IP. It's not just we're thinking about getting it. And I think that they can deliver it because they've done X, Y, and Z. Trying to apply that then to people who are just out of college and university doing their first thing is just impossible. <laughs> like, okay, you're all super bright, great. <laughs> you went to Cambridge, fantastic. So did many other entrepreneurs. Um, trying to figure out who can actually deliver when they're that young is quite difficult. And that's why most successful founders are kind of 40, year, uh, or later, 40 years old or mm -hmm. later on. Now there are obviously exceptions to that, but if you look at the trend, Generally, the older founders are more experienced because they have that experience. They've delivered it before, either in another company or for the, another startup that they started. So what I would look for is an experienced founder mm -hmm. <laughs> you who know, stumbled upon something that is truly different. That's probably another one to say. Every company thinks they're doing something that no other company doing, is doing, every single company. And the number of times that someone says, we're the only ones doing this, and then you just do a Google search. <laughs> <you're> like, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Um, so yeah, don't believe that. But um, but I think the big thing is just trusting that they can deliver because they have the experience delivering. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that's really important that's often overlooked is who the advisors and mentors are. Because mm -hmm. oftentimes it's the advisors and the mentors that are opening the doors for distribution, for supply, for guidance. So you know, I, I don't make too many individual startup investments. You know, I'm still an entrepreneur, don't have a lot of capital. <laughs> but the ones that I have made, it's the team, do they have experience, you know, good experience? Is the idea unique, less so important, but can they deliver on that? Mm -hmm. um, and who are, the, who are the other investors and the advisors? Because those will have an impact. And so I've co-invested with a few of the super angels, small amounts, into a few of the deals. And just the way that they look at it, uh, the investment, but also what they can do post-investment is amazing. It's mm -hmm. like, if they weren't there, this company would not be as successful as it was. And they're just an investor or just a mentor kind of thing. Huh. So yeah, so I would, I would look for that. I think that's often overlooked. How vulnerable are angel investors or early stage investors to subsequent bigger investors? Because one, one topic that we sometimes come across is that the early investors who take the most risk are then sometimes diluted or kind of exploited by all sorts of later investment clauses that then cut down their their returns have you come across that as well yeah um you know having 250 odd portfolio companies like you, you kind of see everything um and there are definitely uh, some vcs that come in and they put these strange ratchets in the round and it dilutes out um, all the early founders and they get you know pro rata this or that and liquidation prefs and all this and you hear some st horror stories um I genuinely, genuinely think that that is changing mm -hmm. and, and good VCs don't do that because they understand the value that the angel has brought. And often what happens is the angel can help the company get the intro to the VC. So if a VC gets a bad rap and the angel's on that board, they go, nah, don't go to them. And remember, the angels generally have a large share so they can vote, they can you know, impact what the, what the company does. 
Um, dilution, though, specifically, is one that, as an early stage investor, you just have to get used to. You know, if a company is doing well, it's going to raise more money at a bigger valuation. And if you're a smaller investor and you can't keep your pro rata, or if you don't have the capital just to put in a little bit more, you get diluted. But dilution, remember, there's two types. Like dilution of percentage of ownership happens, mm -hmm. but your share price has gone up. So the value of your shares, even though you own less of the company, is is net positive. Mm -hmm. That's okay. That's acceptable. What's not acceptable is if it goes the other way. <laughs> you know, the value of your holdings start to go down. Um, sometimes that happens if there's a, a flat round or a down round. You know, and some people look at flat rounds and down rounds as good opportunities to reinvest. Um, interestingly, the data that we have on the market um, suggests that most companies that do that kind of down round don't turn it around. So we have with the fund um, a couple stipulations where it has to be an up round, so we don't go into down rounds because historically most companies don't turn it around. The ones that do great as an investor, you got in on the cheap, they turn it around, great exit, but you know it's finding needles in a haystack in that sense. Um, yeah, so we don't do down rounds. They have to be kind of uh, at least one x in in uh, share price. Um, yeah, so <laughs> sorry, there's there's a lot there to unpack, but dilution isn't the end of the world. Good to know. One of the things you mentioned uh, also at the beginning is that you're running an EIF based yes, fund, sorry, yeah. and and maybe that's something some of our listeners mm. are not familiar with. So can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So. EIS, sorry, I wasn't clear about that, um, is, called, is the Enterprise Investment Scheme. Mm -hmm. It's a government-approved scheme, so it's not like offshoring or anything like that. This is um, a scheme introduced by the government to promote investment into early-stage businesses. Um, and in some variation, it's been around since the 80s. Um, it was called different things back then. Effectively, um, the government understands that job creation comes from small companies and innovation generally comes from small companies. So what they tell investors is that if you invest in these, these EIS-approved companies, so it's a certain type of company, um, we'll give you some tax relief. Um, the biggest one is income tax relief. So let's say that you put 5,000 pounds into a company, um, you get 30% of that as an income tax deduction. So 1,500 quid off your income tax bill. Thank you very much. You know, if in, in material, I've invested 3,500 as opposed to 5,000. Then what happens, and it makes it even better, if that company does well, great. Um, you know, you get the profit. You don't pay capital gains tax on that if you've held the share for three years. If the company doesn't do well, and this is where I think the government's really clever, you get a bit more tax relief. Um, so your 3,500 pound investment, it was 5,000, you got 1,500 back. Um, depending upon your tax, um, the amount of tax that you pay, the percentage, you multiply that by the 3,500, so it was 40%, 40 times 3,500. It's 45%, 45 times 3,500, and you get that back um, in the next tax um, as loss relief. Mm -hmm. So in effect, you're out of pocket, if you will, um, only about 30% of your investment. Uh, and the UK for a long time was the only country to offer this. There are a few countries now starting to offer it in the EU or something similar to it because mm -hmm. they see what it's done to the, to the tech space in particular in the UK. You know, it is booming. There's about 1.8 billion pounds a year that gets invested under the EIS scheme, which is quite a lot. You know, mm -hmm. it's not it's not huge, but it's not nothing. And if you looked at what the average round size was and the number of companies that raise for it, you're talking about thousands of companies that are raising um, using this EIS tax relief. So it's been you know great at getting private investors to invest in early stage businesses. Interesting. And our, and our fund is an yeah. EIS fund, so it offers that tax relief. 
Well, that was very interesting to hear. Yeah, great. Um, we've got one final fun question to finish up on, sure. which is, what was your favorite startup of 2019 and why? In our portfolio, in general? In <laughs> general, general. Um, so we invested in a company, ooh, it crossed years. I think it was 2018-19, so okay. we'll, we'll, we'll fit we'll a little it. bit. Yeah. Um, you may called, be forgiven. Yeah, called Bocatech, so B-O-C-H-A Tech, um, who have developed a um, manufacturing process for actual recyclable plastics um, to be used in things like coffee cups, trays, etc., you know, microwave meals and such, um, that is getting to the point where it's as cost-effective as a paper cup um, and lasts longer. So their target market is, say, Starbucks or whoever, who have these paper cups that get coated with a heat insulin, which means it's actually not recyclable. So when you look at like a Starbucks cup, only the lid's recyclable. Um, so what they want to do is replace that with this plastic one that's fully recyclable and do it at that cost. But the cool thing about it is the way that the manufacturing process is set up, it injects oxygen into it and builds like this honeycomb-like system. And so you get this cup, which should cost a P, which will be the same as the paper cup, but then you can reuse that like 100 times. So their aim is to replace all of those non-disposable cups that coffee chains and others do with this plastic Coretto cup, as they call it. Um, and I really like that because obviously it's got a good social impact, if you will. There's a good market for it. And then you know, coincidentally, it was about a month after we invested in it, I went to, um, what's it called, the Wildlife Park in Royston. Um, and they were using those cups. And I was just like, I know this. <laughs> like, I was thinking, we invested in this. And my wife looked at me and she's just like, you're such a geek. <laughs> but it was really cool to see it you know, out in the, in the wild, if you own the community. Uh, and, and hopefully, you know, all the reports that they've, they've presented since then, they're doing pretty well. I'm not sure it's going to be one that's like a, you know, a, a unicorn status exit, but it will get bought out. It will be, I believe, a good return. And also it is bringing, um, you know, it is having a positive impact on society and reducing waste and bringing you know, proper recyclable plastic um, into consumers' lives. So that's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on the show with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I thought that was a great conversation with Tom, particularly uh, what I found interesting is how unpredictable startups are nowadays, or the success of startups, despite the fact that we have such huge data improvements. And I think what Syndicate Room do is really smart, basing their uh, data-driven decisions on people that then do the analysis of the startups. But I still think it's interesting that data can't predict those st startup success directly. I completely agree. And for, for me, it was fascinating to hear more about their journey because mm. from where they started to where they are now, uh, it, it was an interesting development. Mm. Um, and, and their approach has changed from, as you said, this platform democratizing, in a sense, access to early stage investment to a, a slightly more traditional mm. uh, model but that, that might make more sense from a business point of view. Mm. Thanks very much again to Tom for joining us on Q Talks. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech who have been working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening and 
please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us about your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks. Qtech.